Well, good morning for our scripture reading this morning. We're in the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. And we're going to begin in verse 31 and read down through the end of the chapter, verse 38. Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. The Bible says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this, for this passage that, that you have given us. Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning in a mighty way. Lord, help us to understand that, that thought this morning that though we, though we gain the whole world in terms of material possessions and riches and lose our soul, all, all is lost. Lord, I just pray that this morning if there's someone here that does not know you as their personal Savior, that if they don't know for sure that if they were to die today, they're on their way to heaven, I just pray that you would speak and convict their heart, speak to them in a, in a mighty way. And, and Lord, those of us who are Christians, I just pray that we would be challenged and we would be just brought close to you. Help us to, to seek to live for you and live surrendered and broken before you. Lord, be with Brother Davis as he preaches to us this morning. Fill him with your Holy Spirit and use him in a mighty way. Give him the exact words you would have him to say. And I just pray that you would bind Satan and his demons from, from attacking, from distracting. And uh, Lord, I just pray that um, you would cause them to flee. And Lord, speak to our hearts. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've enjoyed having Brother Adam Davis and Brother Zach Whiting with us for these last couple of days. They've been working with our teenagers Friday night and again yesterday, all day yesterday, and young people had a great time. The Lord's been working in their hearts and lives. And this morning we have the privilege of having Brother Adam Davis come and preach for us. Brother Davis has uh, taught at Veritas College. We have a number of people in our church who work there and who also are some who are students there. He also has a ministry entitled Keep Your Heart Ministry and working with young people across the country. And we praise the Lord for the influence that God has uh, given him and has used him to help young people. Our young people need their hearts turned toward the Lord, don't they? And then to keep them uh, on the Lord. And so we're delighted to have him come. He's going to preach for us this morning. You listen carefully as he comes. 
Well, good morning. It's my privilege to be here with you this morning, and uh, we've had a great time over the last couple of days working with the young people, and it's uh, great to finally meet so many people do, that I've spoken to and emailed back and forth with and, and uh, acquaintances through Veritas, and it's great to actually be here. And thank you, Pastor, for letting us be here today. And let me tell you just a, a, a little bit about our ministry before we jump into uh, the Word of God this morning. Um, I founded Keep Your Heart Ministries back in the summer of 2010 after the Lord placed on my heart a burden for reaching and discipling young people. I had been uh, on the road for three and a half years with Evangelist Byron Fox as an intern and really was kind of setting up to take more of a leadership role in that particular ministry. I was having the time of my life writing and arranging uh, music for choirs and directing choirs and all that goes with that music ministry. But every once in a while as we traveled around, we would do youth rallies, and I just kept finding that that's where my heart was drawn. And as I spoke with Brother Fox, you know, we realized that uh, though we would have uh, occasional opportunities to do youth rallies, being the assistant director of Bible Truth Music was not going to give me that opportunity. And so uh, shortly after that, I started Keep Your Heart Ministries, and, and ever since, the Lord has just opened more and more doors and blessed exceedingly. We we try to work with young people and with families in a variety of different ways. We've organized our ministry under three different branches. We have a live productions, which is our music and drama ministry. And we understand that music and drama are powerful tools for communicating the life-changing truths of God's word. And it's also given us an incredible open door into families. So we have an after-school program there locally in Fredericksburg, Virginia, where we have uh, 20 to 30 kids every week who come and join us and learn hands-on music and drama training and put on a production at the end of each term. And that has then led to us being able to have Bible study with those kids and be involved in youth events and activities. And we have a number of things that fall under that umbrella of music and drama, and the Lord has continued to use that, including our summer camp, a live camp that we do three weeks of every summer for teenagers. Then we have what's called impact mission trips. These are short-term trips with lifelong impact, and we lead groups of teens and young adults to different places around the country to help church planners in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Kansas City, Missouri, and Albany, New York, and, and Brooklyn, New York, and different places like that, as well as international locations like Haiti, Guatemala, and the, coming up this summer, Nicaragua. So that's another part of what God allows us to do, especially during the summer. And then we have what's called Summit Rallies and Resources, and this past weekend we were doing one of our Summit Teen Rallies. That's what God originally laid on my heart years ago, was to do these rallies where we could come in and uh, the church would have to get kids there and provide a facility, but they wouldn't have to lift a finger otherwise unless they were preparing some food because we wanted to be an encouragement both to the leaders there and to the kids in that church and in that community. And we wanted to do it um, for as many churches as we could around the country. And so we started small and the Lord has, has grown that as well. And along with those rallies, we've produced a lot of resources to try to help young people uh, through our app. We have a lot of uh, Bible study content and video content designed to help teens and college students study the Bible more efficiently and to really uh, develop their walk with the Lord. So lots of different things that we're doing. And if you've got more questions about that, I'd love to share with you more after the service. But I want us to jump now into the Word of God and look at Mark chapter 8. You've heard the passage read once already. We're going to be looking at, at each of these verses again in the time we have this morning. 
This is a familiar account here in Mark chapter 8, though I think we're probably more familiar with the parallel account that we find in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, The story that we have right before this, which these verses we read, is when Jesus takes his disciples aside and begins to question them about what people are saying about him. So that's really the notable passage from Matthew chapter 16. But the reason I've chosen to preach from Mark chapter 8 is because I think there are some unique insights in Mark's gospel that can help us in really understanding this passage. You know, there are four different gospel accounts for a reason. Uh, They do cover much of the same material, but they cover that material from their own unique perspective and for a specific audience with a specific purpose and theme in mind. And so that influences how the Holy Spirit led them to include certain details and exclude other details. There are no contradictions whatsoever. Altogether, they form a perfect picture of the life and ministry of Christ. But in Mark chapter 8, we do find some little unique things here and there that I think really help us understand what was going on in, Mark's, in, in Peter's life rather during this phase of Jesus' ministry. Uh, if you study the background of the Gospel of Mark, It seems that uh, Peter had a considerable amount of influence in the writing of the Gospel of Mark. Of course, it's all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but Mark is dealing with first-hand accounts that he got most likely from Peter. And so I think if we see this even more so through Peter's eyes, we're going to see a few things that will help us. So, Mark chapter 8, let me just read verse uh, 31 and 32 really quickly before we jump in here. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. So these final verses here in Mark chapter 8 are really a turning point, a major transition in the public ministry of Christ. Up to this point, he had spoken very little about the inevitable conclusion of his time on earth. And what little was spoken was cryptic at best. Now don't misunderstand, Jesus was well aware of what awaited him, but he was being very careful in how he revealed that so that the timing was right. He knew exactly what he was doing. And an example of this would be in John chapter 2, which is from the the first year of Christ's ministry, as John records it. He said this in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, that might seem incredibly clear to those of us who have the benefit of the full story. But to the one standing by, it remained a mystery. In fact, they got angry with him because it seemed like he was threatening their temple. He said said, he's going to tear it down. Why would you say that? And John, the great explainer, adds in parentheses, he spoke this concerning his own body. We understand that. So we we get the advantage of reading it through all the history that's come since then. But those standing by did not understand what it meant. So that's what I'm talking about. He, he had not spoken very much about his impending death, and what he did say was typically cryptic, in the sense that only those who were really listening and had the help of the Holy Spirit could really understand what he was saying. Now, at this crucial moment where we are here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus has chosen to take his disciples aside and prepare them for what was to come. And it says in verse 32, he spake that saying openly, boldly. So that's the difference. He's not hiding it anymore from his disciples, at least. 
He wants them to be very clear on what's happening. Now, what has led to this point? I think it's important to understand the conversation that preceded this. Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them the first question. He says, who do men say that I am? What are people saying about me? There were lots of interesting rumors about who Jesus was. Uh, Some people thought he was John the Baptist, back from the dead. Some people thought he was Elijah or one of the other notable prophets. Others believed that he was just a good teacher. Others believed that he was a, a charlatan who was just conning people and taking advantage of them. Others thought he was a blasphemer, a dangerous false teacher. All those things were being circulated about Jesus at that time. By the way, those kind of things are being circulated about Jesus even now. If we were to ask the world at large, who do you say that Jesus is, we would get some of those answers. People still struggle to come to terms with the truth of who Jesus was. But the more important question was the second one, when he turned to his disciples and said, okay, who do you say that I am? And I think that's important, because when all is said and done, it doesn't matter what anyone else says about who Jesus is. What matters is who you believe that he is, because everyone has to come to a personal decision on that matter. Jesus was very clear on the matter, that he was the Son of God. Everyone has to make a choice whether or not they believe that is true and that he is the only way of salvation. So Jesus turns to us all and asks that same question, who do you say that I am? Every individual has to come to terms with that question. Now, now in this case, Peter speaks out, and that's not surprising to us because Peter's typically the most outspoken of of the disciples. A lot of times that ends in an unfortunate way. But not in this case. Peter has the right answer. And Peter speaks boldly and he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that is significant because he identifies Jesus as the Messiah. I think sometimes we kind of get desensitized or just so used to saying Jesus Christ, his name, we sometimes forget that Christ is not a last name. It's a title. Jesus, the Christ, meaning the anointed one of the Messiah, That was significant that Peter would say that because that was the very thing that others were denying. Jesus claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah and deliverer of his chosen people. And Peter affirms that. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice the living God in contrast to all the dead idols that were worshipped in that area where they were standing at that very moment. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, here's what I don't want you to miss, because this is helpful in understanding the passage that follows. Jesus responds to him, and he says, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonas, for flesh and blood did not reveal this unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. Don't forget that statement. It's very important that we remember what Jesus said in response to this declaration. Now, that seems to be the perfect transition to a very difficult conversation about what Jesus would have to go through in order to fulfill the role of Israel's deliverer. Jesus has just asked them who he is. Peter, speaking for the disciples, says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus says, basically, all right, since you know who I am, then you must understand what I have to do. And so he tells them. But the conversation takes a shocking turn when that same disciple, who correctly identified Jesus as Messiah, now speaks out in opposition to the Lord's announcement that he would be going to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and be raised again in three days. He says, I can't let that happen. 
Now I want to ask us this morning, what was the disconnect that led from Peter's confession to then, within a moment, rebuking Jesus? I'm going to tell you right off the bat. Here's the main thing I want you to get in today's message. This is the truth. Believers are often guilty of desiring God's will to be done in their own way. Believers are often guilty of desiring God's will to be done in their own way. You see, with our our lips, we say, Lord, we want to do whatever your will is. We want your will. But then as his will starts to be revealed, and it's not exactly what we had in mind, it's not how we would have done it, we can turn into Peter rebuking Jesus, saying, why would you do it this way? This is not the way to do it. So I want to ask this this morning, in what ways we make that same mistake in our attempt to follow the Lord as faithful disciples. And in the words of Christ's rebuke of Peter and this short discourse that follows it as he turns to the crowd, we discover some of the least popular and most neglected truths of Christianity, but we cannot neglect them in our own lives. First of all, we see two rebukes are exchanged in verses 31 to 33. We've read the first two of those verses. We see where Peter turns and rebukes Jesus in verse 33. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, this is now Jesus, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Jesus' revelation of his, miss, of his mission moving forward was met with immediate backlash from the disciples. Peter expressed what was most likely the opinion of the whole group. And we first want to look at Peter's rebuke of Jesus. The passage says Peter took the Lord aside and began to rebuke him. And the idea of rebuke here is to forbid. Basically, kind of the idea is that he physically got in his way and said, no, you're not doing that. I won't let you take another step in that direction. Now, Peter is bold. We know that. But this is a new level of boldness for Peter to presume to know what was best in this situation and to actually prevent the Lord from following through with his plan. As far as Peter was concerned, this was the last thing the Lord should be planning to do if he wanted to accomplish his purpose as the king and Messiah for the nation. Why would you go where they're waiting to kill you? It doesn't make any sense. As far as he was concerned, he was willing to step in and physically prevent this plan from unfolding the way the Lord had described it. Despite the reaction from the Lord in this moment, we know the rest of the story. We know that Peter would go on to carry out his plan to prevent the arrest of Christ on the very night it was to occur. In John chapter 18, we find that Peter would draw a sword, cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, still attempting to stop this from happening. Even though Jesus had told them this is what needed to happen. It seems that Peter and the other disciples' ignorance of the Lord's ultimate purpose persisted until the very last moments. So what was it exactly that would make Peter feel the need to rebuke his master in this moment? Was it simply an overwhelming sense of love and loyalty? I think it would be foolish for us to deny that that played a part. Here is a man who has spent three years now with Jesus Christ, learning from him, experiencing things and seeing things we can hardly imagine. He loved him. Jesus had invested his life in these men. and Peter was part of the 
inner circle of, of disciples who got to witness even more moments beyond what the others saw. And now Jesus, in a moment, turns to him and says, I'm going to Jerusalem where they're waiting to kill me. So surely there was this sense of love and loyalty. But that's not all there is. Something else was clouding his judgment. Peter seems to have been oblivious to the fact that according to the Old Testament, Christ must not only reign, but he must also die for the salvation of sinners before that. He, he missed that part of the Old Testament prophecies, but he was not alone. All those around had missed it as well. Not even realizing they, they could have probably quoted Isaiah 53, but they did not realize they were literally fulfilling it as they ignored and rejected and mocked the Savior who stood in front of them. And Peter was among those who didn't understand that there was a suffering aspect. The Savior must first suffer. So Peter rebukes the Lord, but then the Lord rebukes Peter. And the words that he speaks to him are striking, but they reveal to us what was the ultimate underlying issue in Peter's poorly thought out rebuke. What does he say? First of all, he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Ouch. That's harsh. Now, he spoke these words, the Bible says, so that all the disciples could hear them. But they were specifically directed toward Peter because he was the one who verbalized their shared misgivings about his plan to return to Jerusalem. Now, what's happening here? Because I know there's a lot of confusion about this verse. Was Jesus calling Peter Satan? No. He was not calling Peter Satan in the sense that we would think of it. Was he, are we supposed to assume that Peter was demon-possessed? That Peter was unregenerate? No, I don't think that's the case at all. So what is Jesus doing? Why does Jesus say, get behind me, Satan? I think there are two senses of this that are helpful for us to understand. First of all, the word Satan literally means adversary. And so by calling Peter Satan, we don't have to assume that he is referring to him as Satan, the person Satan that we know who is the enemy of, of believers, the accuser of the brethren, all those things we know about who Satan is. But in fact, he could be just saying, Peter, you are acting as an enemy, as an adversary in this moment. You've, you have literally taken yourself and gotten in front of me to stand in my way. And anyone who stands in the way of God's plan is an enemy of God's plan. Get back where you belong. Get behind me. But I think there's something deeper than that. I think based on how the passage continues, what Jesus is doing is he's revealing the source of these thoughts that Peter expressed so forcefully. Now, remember those words from Matthew chapter 16 when Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjonas. Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. That declaration of Jesus' identity that Peter made was not inspired by man. It certainly wasn't inspired by Satan. That was inspired by God himself. God had revealed that truth to, Satan, to, uh, to, to Peter. As Peter had the opportunity to witness the life and ministry of Christ, God revealed the truth about who Jesus was to Peter. But in this case, 
Peter's not speaking words that come from God anymore. When Peter stands in front of Jesus and says, you're not going, that's, he's not speaking on God's behalf anymore. But in fact, he is speaking something that would come from Satan himself. Do you realize any attempt to stop Jesus from going to the cross is ultimately inspired by Satan himself? That was his goal from the beginning. Herod's slaughter of all the male children, the temptations in the wilderness, the death threats from religious leaders, even moments like the one recorded in this passage are all Satan's attempt to thwart God's plan of redemption which required the death of Christ for the sins of mankind. And Peter, now blinded by his own expectations, is acting as a pawn of Satan and his latest assault on the mission of the Savior, this one too, would fail. Peter's not thinking clearly Peter's blinded by his own ambitions, blinded by his own understanding, and he allows himself to be influenced and to speak something that is contrary to the truth. But he doesn't just say, get behind me, Satan. Notice what else he says. Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And with these words, the Lord pinpoints precisely what clouded Peter's foolish thinking that made him susceptible to Satan's deception in the first place. Peter was thinking only from his own limited earthly perspective, not from God's perspective. His expectation of what the Messiah would be and do prevented him from recognizing what God had actually ordained for him to do. In a real sense, then, Peter was more concerned about the personal benefits he would stand to gain from an overthrow of the Roman Empire and establishment of an earthly kingdom where he would rule alongside the king than he was about the redemption of his nation and all nations from their enslavement to sin. Peter wanted the glory, but none of the suffering. He wanted what was ultimately in the future, what, what God had promised him but he did not like the path to get there. Wait a minute. You're saying that you, ha you have to die first? You're going to let them kill you? And then we're going to be persecuted? We're going to be hated? Peter did not want that part. We see that represented in other occasions from not just Peter, but the other disciples who were always trying to find their way to find out who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They, that's all they could think about. Jesus was there. He must be establishing the kingdom now, and we want to get the best seat. But Jesus was saying, no, you don't understand. The, the path that leads to that kingdom and that glory is a path of suffering and self-denial. And you've got to be prepared for that. Get behind me. Satan. Let's think about today, are we actively standing in the way of what God is trying to do? Because we think we could do it better? We don't like the way he's outlined how it's going to go? We need to take heed to this charge from Jesus and get behind him. Which is just to say, get back where you belong. <laughs> Following me not trying to get out in front and get in the way. Two rebukes are exchanged. Secondly, one requirement 
is explained here in verses 34 to 38. When he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus knew that the trap into which Peter had fallen was an easy one for all of his followers to fall into, which led him to now address the multitudes who professed allegiance to him concerning the dangers of true discipleship. So after the scathing rebuke of Peter, Christ gathers the people and he addresses them along with his disciples, relaying important truths they needed to know before they chose to tag along to Jerusalem where everything would change. Now up to this point, following Jesus has been a pretty sweet deal. They get fed. They get to watch miracles. They see incredible things happen. He's at the height of his popularity. But Jesus now turns to all those people who are following him, many of whom were only doing it for what they could get for themselves. And he says, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. I'm not going to be popular there. They might pretend to like me at the beginning. But they're going to turn on me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. And anyone who's bold enough to associate themselves with me will be a target as well. Do you still want to go with me to Jerusalem? There's one requirement, basically, for discipleship here, but it's elaborated on by using a couple of images that help us to understand the implications. First of all, he describes it as a cross to carry. He speaks of the decision to follow him as denying oneself and taking up a cross. Now that's an especially appropriate description given the fact that Christ would soon be bearing a literal cross on which he would be crucified. So what does it mean when he says to us, take up your cross and follow me? Well, there's a sense in which I think it, it represents a person's specific calling or path in life. For Jesus, that was going to be a literal cross which he would bear and be crucified on. So to take up your cross is to take up whatever it is God intends to do with your life and carry it out faithfully. But it's more than that. See, that's, that's a layer we can see through 21st century eyes. But let's think about what this would have sounded like to those who were standing there in that moment. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, they knew exactly what he was saying. Because the cross was a symbol of death. The cross was a symbol of shame associated with the worst of criminals. It was a shameful thing to die on a cross. That's not something we think about. Because today, we cherish the cross. We celebrate the cross. As the Bible says we ought to. We have nothing to glory in save the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we look at it as a symbol of salvation. 
a symbol of deliverance. But when Jesus told those people to take up their cross, that was not a picture they would have understood. To them, it was a picture of death and shame. And so what Jesus is making abundantly clear is that to follow him would mean taking upon themselves the shame, the stigma, the persecution that comes along with associating yourself with Christ. That's something we, I don't think, really truly understand today. When you choose to follow Christ, you are taking on a stigma in the eyes of the world. They do not understand what we understand about the cross. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish. Just like Peter was having a hard time wrapping his mind around why Jesus would do this, the world still can't understand why, if God was going to save the world, he would choose to kill his son on a cross. It doesn't make sense to them. But God's ways are not our ways. The wisdom of, of God is foolishness in the eyes of the world. And we cannot expect to take up the name of Christ and not experience any pushback, any persecution. But that is not an expectation that we consider very often in American Christianity. In fact, I've heard people talk about how we've got to somehow, we've got to somehow you know, preach the cross without the, without the stigma. There's no such thing. You can't write that part out of it. People talk about how can we, how can we faithfully preach the gospel without, without being an offense? Listen, some people will be offended by the truth of the gospel. I'm not talking about being belligerent. I'm not talking about being unkind. I'm talking about unapologetically preaching the truth of the cross and realizing that that's going to rub some people the wrong way because it still has a stigma of shame only in a different sense than it did at that time. So when he says, take up your cross, he says, you better be willing to associate yourself with me means you better be willing to be associated with the shame, the persecution, all that comes along with it. It's a cross to carry, and it's also a cost to be considered. For Christ, bearing his cross would mean giving his life. That would also be expected of his followers. Not everyone would have to die for their faith, but many would. And all of them needed to be prepared for that cost and be willing to pay it, whether they would pay it or not. Christ indicated that the decision to follow him would include, at the very least, the loss of personal gain. And even that was enough to turn some people away from the prospect of following him. Some people when they just found out that they would lose some of their possessions, said that's too much and turned back. In a similar discourse we find in Luke chapter 14, Christ indicated that those who didn't take the time to at least consider the cost were not worthy of the name disciple, nor were they capable of the task of discipleship. But that was not the only cost to consider. Christ made it plain that the cost which accompanied rejecting him would be far greater than those associated with a life of committed discipleship. Those who sought to avoid the loss and shame by turning away from him 
would in fact lose everything. But those who willingly gave up their own lives and fortunes would experience the ultimate gain of eternal life and heavenly rewards. As a final warning, Christ stated that those who were ashamed of him here and now would experience the ultimate shame of being disowned by him when he returned to execute judgment and establish his kingdom. Now understand what Jesus is saying. When he says to be ashamed of him, he means to reject him. That was a very unique moment in history when Jesus Christ stood before them in flesh and said, I am the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I am the Messiah. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He stands in front of them and he says, I'm here, I'm the way. If you want to get in the kingdom, it's through me. And so for them to, when he announces all of this, to be ashamed of him and to turn and walk away, that was to reject him. And we know to reject Christ is to damn ourselves to an eternity separated from, Christ, from him in hell. Now, we don't have Jesus standing before us in the flesh as they did, but we have the message of the gospel presented to us. We have the opportunity to respond to his invitation and to turn away from that is to reject him, just as many of these people did. And those who reject him here on earth will be rejected by him. That's not what he wants. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But he will not force you. And if you reject him, he'll be forced to reject you. This event in the life of Christ, the life of Peter, has given us a lot to consider. I want to ask a final question as we close here. I want to ask what Peter learned from this mistake and what we can learn today. Thankfully, Peter did learn. Peter eventually came to realize the error of his thinking. Toward the end of his life, he wrote to a group of persecuted believers living under Roman oppression, extreme persecution we can't even imagine. And we find him sharing the correct interpretation of what the prophets had been saying about the Messiah all along. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, listen to what Peter says speaking about the prophets and the Old Testament scriptures. When it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Don't miss that. Peter said the Old Testament testified of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Peter understood it now. He missed it then. But now he understood. He, re he realized his error. The Old Testament scriptures clearly taught that Christ would have to suffer and that glory follows suffering. Most of them living at that time had missed it. He missed it. But in the end, Peter would write two letters that would deal primarily with the concept of suffering for the cause of Christ. You know, we often behave as Peter did while still blinded by his own aspirations. We want the perks of following Christ, but we don't want the persecution. But it doesn't work that way. We must recognize that to follow Jesus as his disciple is to commit to taking up our cross 
with all of its associated suffering and stigma, shame, and to lay down our lives with all of its earthly pursuits and pleasures. The decision to follow Christ in true discipleship is a costly one. But the price to be paid for rejecting him is far more severe. We must adopt the perspective which Peter came to embrace, which he and other New Testament authors expressed time and time again in their letters to the churches, and that is that suffering is not something to be avoided. But suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. Because Peter would ultimately write, Beloved, think it not strange concerning this fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of the sufferings of Christ. Peter understood suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. Think it not strange. It's normal. Jesus said it would happen. Paul said it would happen. Peter said it would happen. We know from our own experiences it happens. But it's not a strange thing. It is a normal part of the Christian life to suffer. But thankfully, it's not just a normal part. It's a necessary part. Because it's to try you, he says. Don't think it's strange concerning this fiery trial, which is to try you. It has a purpose. Just like James teaches us in James chapter 1, count it joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience and patience experience. We, we learn to trust God through those trials. Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. It's a necessary part of the Christian life. And one of the hardest things perhaps to embrace is that it is a joyful part of the Christian life. Think it not strange concerning this fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of the sufferings of Christ. Every New Testament author, when given the opportunity to introduce themselves, wanted you to know one thing about them. They were a slave of Jesus Christ. They were willing to suffer for his sake. And they were not just willing, they were doing it with joy. Paul said, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Do you consider it a joyful thing to be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ? My friends, if, if you know God's will for your life, don't stand in the way of it, but pursue it. And when a part of that path goes through a place you would rather not go, trust that God knows that's the only way to get there. Don't get in the way. Get behind him. and Follow where he leads. Lord, we thank you for the story of Peter and how we can learn from his failures and not have to repeat his mistakes. Thank you for patiently bearing with us and teaching us as you did your disciples. Lord, help us to be committed to following you wherever it leads. Help us to be believers who desire your will, your way, whatever that might mean. May we be willing to suffer if that's what it takes to accomplish your purpose for our lives. We ask your blessing on this time of invitation and the remainder of the service. In Jesus' name, amen.